evening from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Taking our text from 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 8 through 11. But we read Ephesians 4. We hear the inspired word of God. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, According to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, 
that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We turn then to 1 Peter 4. And we have in verses 8 through 11 our text. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we find again the Apostle Peter emphasizing the importance of love. And that's not remarkable. It's not shocking. In an interaction with his Lord, which Peter would never forget, Jesus reminded Peter that the supreme qualification for his ministry was love. In John 21, verses 15 through 17, Jesus restored Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jesus questioned to Peter repeatedly was, Lovest thou me? Peter had boasted of his love for the Lord. He had bragged about how strong that love was, how fervent that love would be, how he would defend his Lord. Peter was put to the test, and he failed. And now, though he had failed, Jesus comes to him and again assures him, His everlasting love. His care and provision of His needs. And the fact that Jehovah would be the one whose love for Him would move Him to love Him and to love one another. Peter now takes care to impress that wondrous truth readers. The love of God that fails never. A love that forgave Him. A love that restored Him. And Peter saw the power of that love in his own life. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, he introduced the idea when he urged the saints to have purified their souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Now again, he enters into that admonition here in chapter 4. If we as God's children were as much under the influence of the love of God as we ought be, sins against one another wouldn't even exist. There would be no sins to have to cover. But such a state of innocence and perfection is not going to be our experience here on earth. Offenses must come, said Jesus, and they will come. If those offenses are not met in the spirit of love, They grow, they multiply. 
And a spark becomes a flame, and a flame becomes a fire, and it increases into a raging fire that destroys families and congregations. The one who brings offense always lacks love. The manner of dealing with the offense often lacks love. We, beloved, have been tested as well. We've failed. And we stand before the powerful and wonderful message of the gospel, of the love of God in Jesus Christ that fails never. And we look to God to strengthen us that we might maintain that brotherly love. We take that as our theme, maintaining brotherly love, noting the meaning, the manner, and the motivation. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. We read in verse 8. The use of charity here, as we're familiar, is the equivalent of the word love. Often the Bible replaces charity with love. This is the love that is the fulfilling of the law. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The law calls us love God and love neighbor as ourselves. We have that calling to walk in love toward all whom God puts on our pathway. But that's not the focus of this passage. Others direct us to the calling to love our enemies even. But here the focus is specific. Among yourselves. The calling here is among believers. This affection is often called brotherly kindness. Love of the brethren. It's more intimate. It's more particular than the general love that we're called in terms of doing good toward and showing kindness toward others. This is a relationship of affection and love that is only able to be experienced and exercised by Christians among Christians. It is that which binds individuals together with a common bond. That common bond is the knowledge of the love of God in Jesus Christ personally. A glorious and powerful love that has moved them to know the wonder of their forgiveness. And now in turn, they are equipped by the power of that love to forgive others and to walk in kindness toward others even as they have been forgiven. There can be no true bond in that sense between an unbeliever and a believer. A man who is unchristian in his actions and his opinions and conduct may have esteem for a Christian man, may respect that one, but there's not going to be that ability to entertain and enjoy that Christian bond that we have one with another. And so Colossians 3.14 admonishes us, above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now the apostle was aware of the challenges of living during the evil days of those to whom he writes. And how much more today? As we live in evil days, the challenges abound and the devil works hard to try to undermine and destroy the faith of the saints. We need one another and we need to help one another. We need that love one for another. And we have to be concerned about fellow travelers who are on this journey with us. Love does that. Love shows compassion, shows care. It shows that compassion and that brotherly love for one another as together, as pilgrims and strangers, we face the challenges and the opposition and the persecutions and the sufferings that come upon us. 
Now this bond of friendship, we know this bond of love originates in the work of the Spirit in our hearts. By nature, there's no love in our hearts. By nature, there's only love for self. We live in hatred and strife toward others. But the Holy Spirit works a wonder. And the Holy Spirit works the wondrous love of God within us so that we love God and we love one another. 2 John 2 states, In the truth, for the truth's sake that dwelleth in them and shall be with them forever. That love is for the truth's sake. It's for the truth concerning God. And it's for the truth concerning the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And it's a love that lives within us and will dwell within us forever. Ephesians 4.1 here talked about walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. What is that calling? God has called you out of darkness into light. He's called you to show forth His love and to manifest that love in the congregation among the saints. The truth of God lives within our hearts. And that truth binds us together as we make common confession of the truth. As we now enjoy then an unbreakable bond of friendship and fellowship. A bond that will endure through death to all eternity. How do we know that love of God? We look at what God did for us. And we're humbled to the dust. Love, we know, at its heart, is giving. And what did God do? God gave His own Son for us. And what did Jesus do for us? He gave His own life in our place. The result is that we now know joy. We know salvation. We now have hope, a living hope, as we go through life. We now know and believe that though we die, yet we shall live. We always desire happiness for our loved ones. A happiness that's possible only in God, in conformity to the will of God. Happiness is not something you can seek and get. It's always eluding you. Happiness is a byproduct of obedience. We love God. We walk in obedience to God. And God blesses us with happiness, with joy. That's Psalm 1, which we sang. Blessed is the man. And that blessedness comes as God grants him that joy and that happiness as he walks in fellowship and communion with the living God. This love lives in the hearts of God's children. And because of this powerful love, we serve Him, we seek Him, we delight in Him. We desire to walk in obedience to God, to show our thankfulness to Him. And we show then that love. Love me and love the neighbor. Now that doesn't mean that there's no room for admonition. The Scriptures make we're sinners and we still are selfish. And we're in constant need of growth in this area of our lives. And the Bible repeatedly admonishes us to brotherly love. Although that love of God will always have the victory by God's grace, every single day we face challenges. We face temptations against that way of love. The devil hates unity within our homes and within the saints and among the church. And so the devil constantly is trying to work strife and division. He tries to get us to lie, to backbite, to slander. 
Constantly he's seeking to disrupt that fellowship and that communion within the church of Jesus Christ. He wants us to go our own way, pursue our own will, walk in accordance with love for self. We need to grow. Growth is required in sanctification. We need to hear Christ's word and we need to trust the power of his spirit to work that love and that spiritual growth in our hearts and lives. And so the apostle commands and calls us here above all things. What is the most important thing in your life? Have fervent charity among yourselves. This is how you show your love for God. This is how you reflect that love with which God loved you. Fervent, he says. That's an expressive word, a striking word. Speaking of the extensive, wide-reaching nature of this love. It's a love that reaches to perfection and desires perfection. It wants the object of that love to be filled with the fullness of the Godhead. Nothing short of perfect holiness and righteousness can satisfy. It's also a word that speaks of the intensity of that love. The love of the child of God is not cold, it's not lukewarm, it's fervent. It's a love that makes all the suffering and all the sacrifices worthwhile. It's a love that's willing to get one's hands dirty, to involve oneself in struggling and messy and difficult details in order to assist. It's a love that continues, a love that cannot be extinguished. Extensive, intense permanent affection that God has placed in the hearts of his children and which they desire now to maintain toward God and toward one another. Above all, the love that God has given us in Jesus Christ must be seen as a powerful force of good in our lives. Walk not as the Gentiles walk, Paul said in Ephesians 4. You see how the Gentiles walk. The other Gentiles. You see how they walk in vanity and blindness and ignorance and wickedness in verses 17 and following. You have not so learned Christ. You know the power of the love of God in your hearts. You've been renewed according to the spirit of your mind. And now knowing the wonder of that love, live out of that new life that is yours in Christ. We think back to the way in which Peter opens this book. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, you have been begotten again unto a lively hope. As strangers, as pilgrims, you are a peculiar people who have been set aside by God to show forth His praise. What's the difference? The power of God's grace is the difference. God has so worked His grace within the hearts of His children that that grace will be evident. And that's the point throughout here of the Apostle, you who have been transformed by the power of God's grace need to show it. You need to live it. And by doing so, you need to be a powerful witness to those around you as they see in you that which is not of men. They know it's of God. They see your love one for another during times of sorrow and bereavement. They see the love that you have during times of sin and dealing with the consequences of sin. They see your willingness to drop everything and to assist one another. They see your care for those who are in need. They see the love that you have within your marriage. The love that you have for your children. 
They say you see your devotion as children for your parents, willing to care for them in their old age and provide for their needs. Paul's estimation of the value of love, as he lays it out in 1 Corinthians 13, is in no way greater than the statement that Peter makes here. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, that exceptional chapter about the love of God. And Paul expresses the grand place that's given to charity. It suffers long. It's kind. It's not puffed up. It's not easily provoked. It's that which hopeth all things, endureth all things, that which never fails. If charity is all that, which it is by the power of God's grace, and it's able to do all of that, then it's no wonder that we find ourselves with these admonitions. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. This is the power of God's grace within the congregation. Now what does that charity do? What does it look like? The apostle goes on here. He says, For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Verse 8. Now in no way does that mean that our love covers, atones for our sin. He's not teaching here a works righteousness. There's some who interpret charity in other ways as simply devoting large sums of money toward various causes. Seeking to raise perhaps the standard of living in the world or to raise attention to various causes. That's degrading of the nature of love as love is set forth in the Word of God. Even charity in the true sense of the word can never attain pardon. Pardon for sin can never be accomplished by anything that we can do, anything that man can do. Not with money, not with charity, not in any sense of the word. It's the free grace of God in Jesus Christ alone that covers sin and atones for sin. So what is meant then when the apostle says that charity shall cover the multitude of sins? What charity is talked about? What sins are covered? The fervent love of the brethren is the charity that covers a multitude of sins. And the words, love covereth a multitude of sins, is a quote from Proverbs. It's taken from Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. A man who's under the influence of hatred, and that's the opposite of love, is stirring up strife. No matter where he goes, no matter what he does, he's always stirring up strife. In contrast to that, the book of Proverbs says, don't provoke, don't magnify, don't multiply offenses, but rather cover all sin. Put down strife. Diffuse offenses. Treat them in a manner that is in accordance with the will of God. Even though there may be many of them, deal with them in wisdom. Now, how does love cover sins? We can note a number of things. Ultimately, it's in the way of forgiving. Love shows forgiveness. As we read at the conclusion of Ephesians 4, even as we have been forgiven, we in turn forgive others. But first of all, that's going to be seen in not giving occasion for offense in the first place. These days, people take offense easily, sometimes when it's unwarranted. Offense comes when we sin against someone. And that offense 
always proves there was not enough love in the first place. We weren't walking in love towards someone else. We did something that we ought not have done. We said something we shouldn't have done. And now we created offense. If we had been walking consciously in the wonder of the love of God toward us, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have said that. But we did. And so God calls us then to repent, to turn from that sin. When someone has done that to us, love goes to the brother. Love doesn't allow that person to continue in that offense. That's not love. Love is to restore that brother, to bring that brother to see his or her sin. And in that way, to bring them to repentance and the forgiveness that's theirs in Christ. But also not jumping to conclusions with regard to motives. How easy is that not for us to do? We immediately jump to conclusion as to what someone's motive is. Unjustly. We think their motive must not be pure. We conclude that their motive is something that's contrary to what we would ourselves have as our motive. We may not think that Christian brothers and sisters are looking to injure us, looking to try to find fault with us and to jump to conclusions that they're against us. Often we become our own worst enemies in that regard. Without knowing the whole situation, we jump to the conclusion they're against us. They mean our demise. Trust that God is working in their lives as well. That they're looking out for our good. And where we have questions about that, again, we approach the brother. We approach the sister in order to bring resolution to the matter. And really that, beloved, is what comes down to all of this. Love covers sin by seeking resolution. Love covers sin by addressing the matters in a godly and biblical manner so that the sins can be set aside, forgiven, forgotten. When offense does present itself, we cover it in the sense that we don't give unnecessary publicity to it. Charity does not blind itself to the seriousness of the fault as if we would keep it secret from the offending brother. No, he who loves the brother again rebukes the brother. And who, he who desires to grow spiritually receives the rebuke, knowing that I am weak. I'm a sinner who needs my fellow saints to admonish me where I'm walking contrary to the will of God. But he covers that sin as far as he's able by not publishing it abroad, not speaking to those around him about it, concealing it until he's pursued every opportunity for reconciliation. And then only will he get one other involved, as Matthew 18 teaches. And then finally, if necessary, bring it to the church. Love covers sin then by seeking reconciliation, admonishing, encouraging. And if the brother or sister did not do it, then repenting, telling them that we're sorry for having pursued the rumor or whatever it was that we had heard. So that in that spirit, we go forward together as brothers in the Lord, as sisters in the Lord. What does it mean that God loves us, that God forgives us? Professor Gritters gave an excellent speech on this some time ago. It means that God declares that my sin is forgiven. And God makes that declaration. He works this wonder not for himself, but for me. I need to hear that. And I need to know my sins are forgiven. My sins are put away. 
And he's not going to think about them any longer. He's not going to make reference to them against me. He's not going to make me feel guilty because of those sins. He's not going to shame me because of those sins. He declares those sins are forgiven. And he does it by working repentance, sorrow in my heart, so that I confess those sins. And working the faith by which I believe that barrier is gone. Sin separates me from God. And I know and I experience that separation, as did David in Psalm 31, 32, in Psalm 51. Now, in the way of confession, the barrier is gone. And God releases us from the bondage of that sin and from the shame and the guilt of that sin. And God stands always ready and eager to show mercy and to forgive. He delights in mercy. He loves to show that mercy toward His children in Jesus Christ. And never, never are our sins such that we cannot be forgiven. There are times when we beat ourselves up. We look at the horror of our sins. As did Joseph's brothers. Look what we did to Joseph. How could we ever be forgiven? Our sins are never such that they can't be forgiven. Our Lord Jesus Christ forgives us on the basis of His perfect work. Now we know we cannot, we do not confess every single sin we've ever committed. There are secret sins. There are things that we're not even aware of. Sins of omission that we've committed. And we cry out to God, thankful that our God is rich in mercy and in love. Ready always to forgive. And we pray then, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Believing that the love of God covers the multitude of sins. And that that love by which God covers our sins is the love with which we too, in turn, are able to cover the sins of those around us. Fervent love will not just conduct itself in certain instances, but in all instances, in all cases of offense. Jesus commands us, rebuke the brother as often as that brother is sinning against us. He commands us, forgive the brother as often as he repents of his sin. And so long as we stand in that relationship with brothers and sisters in the Lord, we must be willing to show that love and to walk faithfully according to that love. Offense must needs come. We're sinners. We sin against our spouses. Our spouses sin against us. We sin against our children. Our children sin against us. Brothers sin against brothers. Sisters against sisters. If those sins are not covered, what will be the consequences? Grand schism in the body. Troubles that create unrest, that prevail. Individuals no longer able to worship with others. Edification then interfered with. Christians consumed one of another. And then the influence in the community. The community looks down with scorn. They claim they're followers of Christ. Look how they bite and they devour one another. They'll be envying, strife, every evil work. The only way those sins can be covered is charity. The power of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And the only ones who can show that charity are those who know that love of God in Jesus Christ in their hearts. We are to grow. We are to mature in the way of offenses. Hard that is. Difficult that is for us. Offenses 
will come. But they will not tear apart. They will not destroy the unity. Those offenses will be used by Christ to strengthen the church, to unite the church, to sanctify the members, and to beautify that union. This is the work of Almighty God by His grace. Love can do this, beloved. Nothing but love is able to do this. The love that God has worked in our hearts by His Spirit alone is able to accomplish this wonder. What a power for good that love is. God so loved you in Jesus Christ that that love now is a fervent power within you for good to those around you. A love unfailing. A love that's eternal. A love by which you are forgiven and you have the assurance of everlasting life with God in glory. You have that love in your heart, beloved, by the wonder of God's grace. Show that love toward your fellow believers. The manner in which we do so is also outlined. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. The Apostle demonstrates some ways in which this charity can be seen concretely within the church of Jesus Christ as they perform kind actions one toward another and live together in the joy of that salvation. Christians show brotherly love by using their property for the good of others. That's the hospitality that's referred to. In our day, the idea would be inviting others to come to our homes for meals or maybe they need a place to stay. Showing kindness to friends, to family, members of the church. But hospitality in the sense of Christian duty is kindness to other Christians also who may be strangers to us. Persons who are not living maybe in the same area as we, whom we do not ordinarily associate with. And that's likely what was happening during Peter's time. Intense persecution was upon the church. And so saints were being scattered and they were coming from all different places. Those who had given up everything they had. And now they wander into town and they need a place to stay. The Christians were to welcome those fellow believers into their homes and show kindness to them. We know of examples in the Bible. Abraham entertained angels unawares. Jethro also had a visitor come, called his daughters to invite him in. This was a command that was included even in the law of Moses. If a stranger sojourn with thee in thy land, he shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord thy God. Exodus 22, verse 21. In the New Testament, this admonition to entertain strangers is represented as a necessary qualification even for elders. Many examples can be given. Lydia, Gaius, Philemon, Phoebe. And again, the emphasis here is among one another. Not having to do with bringing unbelievers and the world into our homes, though there's a place again for that, but primarily those who are fellow believers in the household of faith. Christians who may be driven away from their homes because of persecution. Those who are devoted to the service of Christ. Ministers, missionaries, who now are roaming around, coming from house to house in order to bring the word. 
the congregation, the saints, warmly welcoming such individuals into their midst and showing them that hospitable spirit. As God has prospered us, as we have opportunity, we show that kindness. And notice, without grudging. That pricks us, doesn't it? It's easy to grudge, to grumble, because we had to change our plans. Because of the added work that came up. Because it made our life difficult, maybe, in a certain way. And so we grumble, we complain. The apostle warns against this. You who know the love of God in Jesus Christ, and you grumble about showing that love in a small way to another one of Christ's blood-bought children, count it a privilege for Christ's sake. This is the manner in which you live out of that brotherly love. Then again, adding to that, employing your spiritual gifts. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word gift there refers to any natural learned gift that God gives to a man or to a woman. God has given us so many different gifts. Ephesians 4 outlined some of them. To be used for His glory. To be directed to God. They're from God. They're not ours to be used merely for ourselves as we would desire. But God gives us these gifts to use them for the benefit of the body and for the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. The church viewed as a household of various members to whom the various gifts are distributed in order that they might be used for the glory and honor of His name. And we've looked at that again and again. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. The communion of the saints. The marvelous diversity that God gives to the church. The way in which God uses the different gifts for the good of the body. And the calling that we have then to utilize those gifts for the advantage of others. God by Christ, through His Spirit, communicating to His church His sovereign, unconditional love in those gifts. Gifts of wealth, so that some can give generously. Gifts by which we can serve in office. Gifts by which we're able to encourage one another. Provide meals. Gifts by which we can assist others with their chores. Provide a ride for someone that's needy. He who neglects to use the gifts that God has given for the good of the church is an unprofitable servant. Some are given specific gifts to preach and to speak as the oracles of God. Officially teaching the doctrine, teaching the laws of Christ so that the church increases in the knowledge of God's love and faithfulness and holiness. But the principle of the text reaches beyond the special offices to every individual member in the congregation. Abundant room there is within the church for the exercise of gifts to the common benefit of all. Serve one another. Assist one another. Watch one another's children. Assist with one another's labors and work. Reach out members employ our gifts for the common good of the body have fervent charity among yourselves finally beloved there's the motivation that the text itself provides as good stewards of the manifold grace of God that word steward reminds us that everything we have 
belongs to God. It's not ours. God's merely entrusted us with that which is his for a time in order that we might use it in his service and for his glory. Selfishly, we want to use it for ourselves. Selfishly, we want to pull ourselves aside into a corner, isolate ourselves from everyone else, and just serve self. But God says, no, you are stewards. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now again, that's marvelous. Stewards of a grace that is so varied, manifold, that it cannot be contained in you. God has entrusted you primarily with the power of His grace. And that grace is a power within you that can't be contained. It will shine forth. It will manifest itself. You can't keep that to yourself. And that power of God's grace within you will shine forth to overcome selfishness, overcome self, and to serve and glorify God. Manifold grace. The power that God has worked within you that now is used in His service. Be good stewards. Now what a marvelous wonder we've been entrusted with. Nothing that we have, not our property, our gifts, can compare to that wondrous grace. And that grace cannot be taken from us. No one can take it from us. It's a grace that will be preserved and kept to all eternity. God calls us now to serve Him as good stewards of that manifold grace. Serve Him. Glorify Him. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are new creatures in Christ. God has redeemed and called us for His sake, to show forth His praise. We live in the midst of this world for Him and for His glory. And He has worked the wonder of His grace in us by giving us to know His love. And that love of God always seeks the other. It gives. We seek God. We seek the well-being of others for God's sake. We walk in love for the glory and honor of God. And that love that God has worked within us by which we pursue Him and His glory is the motive of the whole of our life. We're thankful. What great things God has done for us. And now that gratitude shows itself in the fact that my prevailing desire is to do all to the glory of God. My prevailing desire is to love God and to love the neighbor as myself. And I walk in love Because I'm a thankful child. I want to reflect His love as best I can as a steward of that powerful grace. That grace that God has shown within me. And only God's power is able to move me to do this. This is the power of God's grace. And this is the wonder of God's goodness. Where there is that love lacking in my life, there's going to be offense. There's going to be strife. The desire of God's glory is not going to be evident. But God will work by His grace, repentance and sorrow. He will work in us a longing to extol Him and to seek Him above all so that His grace and His love not only shines within us, 
but it shines through us to the blessing of others. This is God's work. It's for that reason that the apostle closes with, Amen. This is certain. This is sure. This is the power of the love of God in Jesus Christ. That it will move you to fervent charity among yourselves. Beloved, may God so be glorified. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. We know how selfish, we know how sinful we are. Lord, may we live in the marvelous wonder of that love with which Thou hast loved us. And may the power of that love be evident in and through us as we love Thee and love one another. And work in us that spirit by which we might be eager and willing to forgive even as we have been forgiven. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.